Hey, everybody. Welcome again to F This Movie, the official podcast of FThisMovie.com. Movie love for movie lovers. My name is Patrick Bromley, and I'm super excited for this week's show because we're talking about the 90s. We're talking flannel. We're talking grunge. We're ta- not singles. We're talking reality bites, which means I'm joined for this very special 90s-themed episode by Rosalie Lewis. Hi, Rosalie. Hi, Patrick. Real How are quick, you? Quick, define irony. Uh, I know it when I see it. Yeah. That is one of the funnier, like, bits <laughs> in the movie. I will I will concede uh-huh. that that is one of the funnier bits in the movie. Um, how are you doing? I'm doing great, thanks. Good. How I'm are you? Happy to hear, you know, I'm, I'm here. Yeah. Recording another podcast. Well, seems like a good sign. <laughs> sure. <laughs> as long as people like the podcast. If they don't, they would prefer that I not, then, sure. then it's not good. Well, that's their problem. Uh, hey... Rosalie. Hey, Patrick. Have you seen anything good lately? I've seen a thing or two. All right. Or four. Oh, nice. Um, Yes. So I will admit my viewing has been primarily television related in the last couple months. I feel like there's so much to catch up on and watching anything besides Succession um, because I'm binging that right now from the beginning. How many seasons is it? We haven't started. We're on season four now and I'm only into season two. So like I'm way behind. I'm just worried about spoilers. So I'm like trying to watch it. Got it. And this is the last season. This is the last season. Okay. Yeah. Got it. So um, I guess I'll recommend that, but that's not why we're here. Right. So I will talk about the movie. Didn't come out in the 90s. It didn't come out in the 90s and more importantly, it's not a movie. (laughs) <laughs> True. Much like the Twin Peaks TV show. Uh, that is not a movie. Yeah. I've heard otherwise. I know. People say it's a, yeah. an 18-hour anyway. movie, but they're wrong. Yes. So what felt like an 18-hour movie, all apologies <laughs> to the person who made it. Um, it's an excellent transition. Is a movie called Skinnamarink. <laughs> you finished it? I finished it. <laughs> um, so <laughs> Patrick is asking me that question because when I was at his house yesterday, I had not yet finished it. I had made it about an hour into its hour and 48-ish runtime. Okay, so those who are familiar, I mean, maybe you thought it was awesome. Uh, Maybe you shared my befuddlement. Um, I really wanted to give it a fair chance. It's basically an experimental horror film is how it's been, like, described in marketing. Um, Very independent. I know it was shot for, like, very little money. And maybe like $15,000, which I'd be surprised if it even really cost that much. But (laughs) things cost money, so it's fine. Um, And it's a lot of like the camera sitting there and the room is like dark and crackly. And then like you see a shadow. And, you know, maybe for like 15 or 20 minutes, that would be really interesting. Um, For me, an hour and 48 minutes of that did not produce a lot of fear. The scariest part was when they showed Legos on the floor of a bedroom. And I was like, yeah, if I woke up in the middle of the night, I'd probably step up and die. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there's some interesting things that happen, but there's so few and far between that I feel okay. like it loses all the momentum. Now, I'll say this. When I was describing the – very loosely describing the plot, so to speak, of the movie to Andy, my partner – he was like, that actually sounds really intriguing and like some nightmares I had as a kid. And I was like, well – I mean, it was based on a guy's nightmare. Like, he says that that's what he based it on. So, maybe. But I think it might sound more interesting than it is, ultimately. And I'm okay with, like, experimental movies. But to me, this was more of, like, a really long art project that, Mm. I don't know, for me, just didn't didn't do it. 
If it was like 76 minutes, I could be sold on it. Sure. Um, or you could watch it in three parts like I did. I've been holding off on watching it. Like, it's on Shutter. I have mm-hmm. access to it. And yet I keep finding other stuff to watch because I'm like, I don't know that yeah. I want to see Skinnamarink. I started it, like, on a Sunday morning. I got up early and I was like, all right, I'm doing this. I'm watching Skinnamarink today. And I couldn't even get, like, <laughs> to breakfast without, oh like, gosh. pausing it and being like, yeah, maybe I'll watch the rest of this later. <laughs> and really the only thing that kind of kept me going through it is that one of my coworkers was like, have you seen Skinnamarink? Because we have to talk about it. And I was like, oh, man, now I have to watch Skinnamarink. <laughs> um, so, but really, I did want to see something good in it. I just... Mm. No, wasn't, not so much. Wasn't my jam. That's right. okay though. All right. I'm sure for some people it's like super scary and good for you. Yeah, that's awesome. I know there's people that love it. So I just don't have a scary imagination. I guess. I don't know. <laughs> um. Okay. A movie I will talk about that I had a much better time with yes. was Living on Tokyo Time, and this is a 1987 movie. It's on the Criterion Channel right now. And it's part of their Asian American 80s collection that they've curated. So it has things from, you know, Wayne Wang and things like that in there. This I was not familiar with until I saw it in the collection. But I was intrigued by the trailer. So the basic premise is that um, a young woman from Japan has an arranged marriage and she's engaged to this guy. And he cheats on her. So she decides, you know what, I'm going to leave this arranged marriage behind. I'm going to leave... Japan behind because it's you know like frowned upon by her family right I'm gonna go to America and like start fresh so she goes to I believe it's San Francisco um and she gets a job at a restaurant she ends up staying there beyond her like visitor visa and so one of her co-workers is like well I have a perfect solution for you I know this guy he's Japanese American he's in a band he's not like that cool but you know you could Bands get are married cool. And, like, maybe you'll end up liking him and maybe not. And if you just have to get through, like, the immigration part and then you're in the clear. Yeah. And in the meantime, she's telling her guy friend, like, hey, I know this girl at work and she's, like, you know, just from Japan. And, like, I know you're Japanese, but you're not that in touch with your culture. And maybe this will be good for you and make you more interesting. So, you know, it doesn't seem like a great uh, idea for either of them. But this is how Erica and I met. Sure. Of course. And so, yeah, they... End up getting married. Um, we don't see the wedding because it's a, a very low budget uh, movie. So I don't think they wanted to shoot a whole wedding. It's a real skinnamarink. It's a real skinnamarink, Patrick. <laughs> um, but they do have lots of very fun sequences of the band practicing. And they're not very good, but they wear really great t-shirts from the Ramones <laughs> to the Cramps to Velvet Underground and Metallica. And one of the members of the band is, like, demonstrating how to make sure that they're entertaining when they're on stage by, like, jumping around. He's like, you can't do it just, like, strumming the chords. It'll be boring. And they seem to have very high hopes for themselves. Um, And she, on the other hand, like, she's going along with it. I should say her, the actress's name is Minako Ohashi. um, And she is very, like, charming in it. um, But she also... I think has her eyes wide open about what this actually is. Whereas the guy in the situation, Ken Nakagawa is the name of the actor and the character's name is also Ken. She calls him Mr. Ken. Um, And he seems to be thinking like getting married was a way to please his parents and um, they'll be happy. He married someone who's Japanese and he didn't, he had a girlfriend before who didn't seem to like him very much and she dumped him very unceremoniously. So he's like, all right, I'll try this. And then he kind of falls for her. Okay. Um, it's very like, 
I mean, if you've seen indie 90s movies, like they have a tendency to be very like lo-fi. The acting's not always right. amazing. <laughs> but there's a lot to love about this. I really loved, you know, like some of the lines and some of the humorous situations that happen. I loved the music that was in it because it's all like kind of um, weird synthesizer rock from Germany, but also like some Japanese pop is thrown in. Nice. And, you know, it's again, like it's all super independent. So, yeah, it was a fun um, short movie. I think it was <laughs> only 83 minutes. And uh, living on Tokyo time is nice. worth your time. Is it? A, oh, nicely done. <laughs> That's the pull quote right there. <laughs> um, is it a comedy? More um, of just it's like a build as a rom com. So what's okay. funny is I watched trailers for it afterwards just to like see how it was advertised at all, and. Of course, they used the vapors turning Japanese in it because, like, of course they did. Interesting. Um, don't feel like that's a fair way to advertise the movie, but whatever. Um, <laughs> it's not as, like, wacky comedy as it looks like from the trailer. Right. It's okay. more of, like, a subtle, like, knowing comedy than, like, a ha-ha laugh-out-loud comedy. But there are funny moments. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. I think I I think I know what the vibe is. Kind yeah. Of. I want to check it out. That's yeah, awesome. Yeah, you definitely should. Yeah. And I'm... Interested in seeing more of the stuff from that particular collection. I don't know how long it'll be on the channel, but I think that it's new for May. So hopefully it'll be there a couple months. Yeah, probably. Um, Another one that I watched that's on two different sections of the Criterion channel. So I was going to find it one way or another. (laughs) um, Is a movie starring Jennifer Jason Lee and Eric Stoltz. You know what's so funny? What? I watched this movie on Friday. What? Yes, I know exactly because I saw you logged it on Letterboxd and I was like, I wonder if she watched that because she saw that I just logged it because I got my Blu-ray from Vinegar Syndrome. And anyway, go ahead. Yeah, I had no idea. I I wanted to watch something from the um, erotic erotic thrillers collection and I'd seen most of them already. And I was like, well, this one has Jennifer Jason Lee and Eric Stoltz and I don't know much about it. Um, So I don't want to steal any of your thunder packs. Oh, no, I wasn't going to talk about it. So go ahead. Um, so it's a southern gothic movie, but like set in modern Ooh, times. Is it ever? Um, lots of fog, lots of steam, lots of swampiness. There's a character. Did you say the name of it yet? Uh, it's called Sister Sister. I don't know if you did or not. I, I don't remember. think I did. Not to be confused with, you know, Tia and, Tia and Tamara. Tamara Maori. Um, yeah. There's a character named ATN, and yes. his name is said. A million times. One, yeah. So many times. That's yes. how southern gothic this movie is. Oh, totally. The accents are fascinating (laughs) um i really enjoyed this movie i can't necessarily call it like really good but it was really fun for me to watch (laughs) yeah um it was really interesting seeing eric stoltz in a lead role because i don't feel like that happened very many times or at least not like in the movies i've seen he's usually more supporting yeah this would be what like the same year or year before some kind of wonderful yeah it's got to be around around that same time so it was when they were trying to make him a thing right and um, would have been after the whole, like, Back to the Future right. situation. Post-mask. Post that. Yeah. So, I mean, he was, I thought, really compelling as a, a character where I didn't quite know where it was going with him. I had my suspicions. <laughs> um, so, basically, we're set up to see these, like, two sisters, the sister-sister of the title. Uh, one is played by Judith Ivy, and the other is played by Jennifer Jason Lee. They seem to have a close relationship. I thought it was going to go a different direction for a while. Um, (laughs) And the older sister is really protective of Jennifer Jason Lee's character. She seems to have like some 
psychological disturbances, perhaps, or maybe some past trauma. Um, and we learn more about that as the movie unfolds. And they own this like sprawling kind of plantation style hotel situation where guests come to stay, but they only seem to have like a couple guests. And then ATN, as we talked about, played by uh, what was the Oh, I don't remember the Benjamin actor's name. Mountain? Okay, sure. Um, I'm just looking on Letterboxd. <laughs> I don't actually know. But um, yeah, it was it was a fun movie. If you're looking for a little gothic distraction in, of the 80s persuasion, don't expect to be super wowed by like the plot twists. No. Um, but it's definitely fun. And there is some eroticism. Sure. Albeit mostly in a dream sequence. Right. That's not a spoiler. It's opens the first thing that, that happens. Yeah, literally opens that way. It's uh, one of the first or the first movie directed by Bill Condon. Yes. Which was sort of what made it noteworthy to me. The score is very over the top. And distracting. And distracting. I, As a Jennifer Jason Lee completist, I enjoyed it. Totally. Yeah. Um, If you're looking for a more let's say, effective erotic thriller, I feel like Single White Female is probably sure. a little better. Yeah. Um, yeah. But this one's super fun. And um, it's also, don't be confused, like I was, I made the same mistake that Bill Murray did, and I saw Joel Cohen in the credits. <laughs> and I was like, wait, what? And then I was like, oh, there's an H. <laughs> it's the other one. Rosalie Lewis also signed on to Garfield. I did. Um, okay, so my final movie that I'll talk about, and then you you can talk about yours because I'm taking up all the no, time. No, you're fine. Um, is the uh, movie called Boston Strangler, um, and this is actually a 2023 movie, yeah. one of the few 2023 movies I've watched actually so far this year um, because I'm really bad at keeping up with them. But it is on Hulu, so super easy to find, and it is directed by Matt Ruskin, starring Kira Knightley, Carrie Coon, and Chris Cooper, and then a bunch of other interesting folks, too. I don't want to read through the whole list of credits, but as you might guess from the title, it's about the Boston Strangler. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I actually didn't know a ton about the case before watching the movie, and I don't. I think that might have helped my interest like stay peaked. I've seen people compare it to Zodiac, like, less favorably, which, I mean, Zodiac's a lot to live up to. Like, in my yes. opinion, that's one of the one or two best Fincher movies, so Agreed. I don't think it's totally fair to hold it to that standard. But as a, like, crime procedural about, you know, two people that are kind of uncovering and looking through all these very vast number of, like, clues and leads and things that don't necessarily make sense, I thought it was really effective, okay. and I really liked um Kira Knightley in it I thought she was fantastic um she's always great but it's fun to see her in like not period kind of stuff yes because she gets put in that although box. this is period isn't it well yeah not I guess like so. not like Victorian that's but, true yeah. it is um but like yeah like the 50s or 60s yeah, yeah, I yeah. think so you're right it is period but she's but, not wearing but like not the a same corset period. exactly you know <laughs> sorry for corset fans um <laughs> So, yeah, it's really interesting to me, like, the angle that it comes at with the, with the movie because it's really told from the story of these two female reporters who were on the case and who, at the time, it was, like, unusual for women to be reporting on serious crime stories. They were usually assigned, like, lifestyle type of stories. Mm-hmm. And so, at least from the perspective of the movie, I haven't, like, dug into it. Um, but, you know, and their pictures were paint- were printed with their bylines, which was controversial at the time. And they didn't really want that to happen. But it was like, well, this is one of the ways we're selling the stories that it's, like, written by women, these two girl detectives, <laughs> you know. Um, and it also kind of gets into, like, the 
commonplaceness of male violence against women. Ooh. And yeah, it's, it's right. I did yeah. feel a little at the end because it basically the premise of the movie is like it was super hard to solve the crime because so many people could have done it. Oh my gosh. And um, you know, it, it definitely isn't gonna leave you on like a happy note necessarily, but they do seem to eventually get to some resolution. Um so yeah, I would recommend it. Don't hold it to Zodiac standards, but very good as a procedural. I would have just arrested the guy who's like, I'm gonna fucking strangle you, kid. <laughs> There's definitely not enough That's of that action. Clearly accent. the Boston Strangler. Clearly. We had a New York Strangler in here. Yeah. But that's the Boston Strangler. The- you know what? I weirdly avoided this because I thought it was a TV show. Oh, it's because not a TV show. Everything is a TV show now or yeah. like a three-part documentary. It's not even two hours. It's nice. 112 minutes. Nice. So, yeah. That's like Watch a real it when you don't mind being. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Watch it when you don't mind being a little bummed out. Okay. I'll take it. Yeah. Um, all right. What are what are, was that? That's it. That's I'm it. Done. Okay. It's your turn now. No, that's okay. Uh, what I forgot what I had now. Um, you watched Sister Sister. We've talked. I about did that. watch Sister Sister. Oh, I watched Renfield finally. Oh, okay. Which and? I enjoyed knowing what I was in for. Uh, my expectations had been sort of lowered because I was told that like it's half of a good movie, mm. and I would say it's like two thirds of a good movie. But there is this whole subplot with Aquafina as a cop trying to take down this family of gangsters mm, and okay. that part is less interesting uh, but they exist as as JB pointed out on a recent podcast the gangsters exist so that Renfield has people to kill sure. basically so they're the body count and it's real over the top and gory Nicolas Cage is super fun I, it was almost worth it for the first Three minutes of the movie, which like shot for shot recreate scenes from Todd Browning's Dracula with oh, Nicolas Cage and Nicholas Holt. It was really cool. It was I was like, oh, I I'm thought in you good were going to say it was repeating scenes from Vampire's Kiss. Sadly, no. Which Although there is a lot great. of bug eating. Okay. Um, because that's what gives Renfield his superpowers. Because ah. you need to have superpowers in a story like well, this. Apparently, every movie needs a superpower. <laughs> There's like a funny, a good idea mm-hmm. about the relationship between Renfield and Dracula, and then they needed to add all this conflict. And by the end, Dracula kind of just becomes a generic bad guy, and that's upsetting because for most of it, Nicolas Cage appears to be just having a lot of fun, being super eccentric and silly, and mm-hmm. Uh, Nicholas Holt is good. I I had a good time with it. I can't like defend it <clears throat> as being like a really good movie because sure. it's deeply flawed. But I liked it more than I expected I would. So I'll take it. Yeah, sounds um, fun. Yeah, a movie I liked less than I thought I would uh, is a movie called Soft and Quiet, which came out last year. I don't even know how much to say about it because technically almost. Describing the plot would be a spoiler. Oh, because we knew nothing about it. We press play. I was I feel like, like I've seen the poster, but I don't yeah, know anything about it. I had heard that it was good, and mm-hmm. it showed up on Netflix. So okay. we press play, and it's a movie that's done in all one shot for no reason than to do it all in one shot. Sure. Uh, and it gets to a point where it sort of reveals what it's going to be about. I won't say what, but there's a pie that has something carved into it. Is Jason Biggs involved? I wish. The camera holds on it forever, like almost rubbing your nose in it, like see what we're doing. 
and I kind of checked out from that point forward. It only gets worse and uglier. It's deeply unpleasant, but doesn't earn any of its unpleasantness. I thought it was like one of the worst movies of the year. Wow. Well, of last year, I guess, because it's a 2022 movie. But uh, it's on Netflix. Okay. See it for yourself, everyone. It's trying to tackle very big issues. Like pie. Like pie and things that you can do to pie Mm -hmm. that are not Jason Biggs related. Okay. Uh, Well, I'm automatically less interested. (laughs) Exactly. Um, I got two more. One is, oh, um, the Chicago Critics Film Festival is going on this week, and I wasn't able to go see uh, Brooklyn 45, the new Ted Gagan movie that I really wanted to go see on Saturday night. But at midnight, they did a screening of a new documentary called A Disturbance in the Force, which is all about the Star Wars holiday special. Um, are you familiar with the Star Wars holiday special? Is that the one with the Ewoks? No. Okay. <laughs> I'm not even saying that to be Erica right now. I just realized that I said basically her line. Sorry. Um, okay. But no, I don't think no, I'm familiar. It, so the Star Wars holiday special, it, it almost requires too much explanation, but it came out very quickly after Star Wars. Okay. It was like, we need something else Star Wars related because the movie is playing so well and we want to keep this going. Uh, obviously it predates, you know, VHS and anything. So they're like, what else can we do? Well, how about a holiday special? And the thing that I like about the documentary, which is not great. It's a lot of like pop culture talking heads like Seth Green and Kevin Smith and people that you expect to see, um, is that it does try to provide some context for the Star Wars holiday special. It has been embraced as sort of this ironic masterpiece because it's real weird and real silly and Mm -hmm. like it's it's about Wookiees celebrating life day um which is a holiday that's made up and uh it can be found probably on youtube like you might get Mm -hmm. a kick out of it you have a pretty high tolerance for i won't say camp what what what's the novelty novelty sure (laughs) let's say novelty yeah um They try to provide some context for it by saying, like, you had to sort of be alive in the 70s and be watching TV at this time because there's no such thing as, like, variety specials anymore. But they were very commonplace back then. And they were shitty and Mm -hmm. and goofy. And they were only meant to air once, you know, and then they would disappear forever. And so they, they weren't meant to live on through bootleg VHSs and YouTube and all that stuff. And so George Lucas very quickly distanced himself from it. So it kind of talks about, like, what went wrong with the special to make it this weird cult item that it is. And then it talks about the legacy of the special. It's, like, totally fine and totally interesting enough. I've never even seen the Star Wars Holiday Special. I just know of it. Um, I've seen clips from it. The documentary, like, gave me everything that I need. I probably won't go and find the special, but it has all the cast members. Like, Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher and Harrison Ford were all contracted to do something with it. There's an animated sequence that introduces Boba Fett even before The Empire Strikes Back. Andy might know about this. I don't know. Yeah, he's a Star Wars guy, right? That's what I thought. Um, Anyway, Disturbance in the Force. Don't know when it's coming out. It'll be on streaming at some point, and I'll tell you. Do we think it's going to be on Disney Plus, or is it not affiliated? I would say it's not affiliated. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
At least I think. I don't know. I feel like they have vacuumed up everything star related. They kind of have, haven't so, they? But then there's sure. still stuff like are the cartoons on there like Ewoks and droids? Mm, that I don't know. I don't either. I just remember those being on in the 80s, but sure. I never watched them. And it turns out I'm like not as big a Star Wars guy as people think I am. Mm. I don't know. Whatever. I like Star Wars. It's but the Wookiee suit, Patrick. It, it is. It's, it does. It's warm. Well, yeah, and very you need it in the basement. Yes, for sure. exactly. It's fucking cold down here. <laughs> um, and then the last movie I'll talk about is a movie that I put off watching for many years because I was told that it would diminish my estimation of a certain rock band. Oh. And that is U2 Rattle and Hum. Have you ever seen U2 Rattle and Hum? I have not. Okay. Um confession, I'm not the world's biggest U2 fan. <laughs> I suspected as much. Uh I like a few of their songs. Okay. Um I think their earlier stuff is better, sure. but I definitely am not like taking anything away from anybody who loves them. No, uh, no no no. Um you would not like U2 Rattle and Hum. Okay, that's <laughs> fair. even as a U2 fan, it's like a little ridiculous. It's very much, um, it's very pretentious. Sure. They were sort of at the top of their popularity um, and they were in their 20s and they were very filled with self-importance, mm -hmm. especially Mr. Bono. It's like the worst time to have a camera on you. I mean- a camera on you all the time. Right. <laughs> like, and I was listening to this podcast um, that was making fun of, you know, the movie opens with them covering Helter Skelter and Bono very famously saying, Charles Manson stole this song from the Beatles. We're stealing it back. Oh, my God. Right. Sure. And that's how the album opens, too. Uh -huh. um, it includes that little piece of dialogue. And this podcast was making the point that, like, okay, but they're saying that every night in front of 80,000 people, and all those people cheer. So at no point is he going to be like, well, that's a bad idea to say that. Like, no. uh, it just reinforces him wanting to say it. Of anyway, um, I really liked the movie. It's shot primarily in black and white. There's a few sequences that are in color. It's very much a document of who they were at that time. The, the music that's new to the concert film it's a concert film basically yeah. um the music that's new to the concert film is like not my favorite stuff there's a lot of uh for lack of a better expression like sort of cultural appropriation going on uh -huh. because it's very much about them like digging into american music and and checking out like who their influences are so they get like a gospel choir to sing sure. with them but it's like you're using people of color as a prop to like mm. give you credibility um, or they do a number with B.B. King and it's not good. Right. Um, but all the, all the their album stuff that they do live is incredible. Um, they sound amazing. They look great. It's shot beautifully by Phil Juano. Um, I really enjoyed it. Okay. And it didn't make me like them less because I knew going into it, like they're going to come off kind of poorly. And they do a little bit, but like knowing that going in, I was prepared for it. I feel like being a U2 fan, you already know that they're kind of pompous. So like if that was a problem for you, you probably wouldn't be this into Probably their music wouldn't anyway. be a U2 fan, right? Right. So you kind of already know that. Yes. Um, do you find you generally like concert 
docs or are you selective when it comes to that? I'm pretty selective, I think. Um, it depends on how into the band I am. I'm mm-hmm. trying to think of like concert docs that I really like besides like Stop Making Sense. Sure. What are some other ones? That's definitely that I... the best one. Yeah. I mean, I'll watch anything I can find live of David Bowie, for example. Yeah, we watched Moon Age Daydream. Yeah. That was cool. I wish I would. we would have gone to see it when it was in IMAX. Yeah, me too. Because that would have been neato. Super cool. Um, yeah, I mean, for me, it's like if I've seen the band myself, I am probably less likely to check out a concert doc because okay. I feel like for me, the, the whole idea of the concert experience is like being there and feeling that energy. Right. And right. it's really hard to capture that on camera. It's yeah. just something magnetic that you kind of feel when you're in it. Um, and I feel the same way about most like live CDs, too. I don't listen to a lot of live albums for that same reason, unless it's like a cover of something I'm not going to hear anywhere else. Or, right, right, you right, know, right. like the Johnny Cash live at whatever prisons, Folsom and whatever. I like those a lot. But those are so unique because of the atmosphere, because yeah. of the specific place. So when it captures that kind of moment in time, I'm into it. But I don't know. I have a harder time. Like really being sold on a concert documentary, but this is something where I feel like it sounds like it was speaking to your interests, like in a really specific yeah, way. Yeah, for sure. I'm on like a pretty huge YouTube kick. I half jokingly tweeted out last week that they're my new favorite band, but that's because my old favorite band was Kiss, mm-hmm. and Paul Stanley recently said some really shitty stuff, and so he oh, was no. he was dethroned. As my favorite, and U2 has taken their place. Well, there you go. Because they never say anything shitty. No, like never. Charles They're, Manson stole yeah. this one from the Beatles. <laughs> we're stealing it back. Um, oh, we're having all kinds funny. of sound problems, so I apologize. Those of you listening, if the volume keeps fluctuating, it's because our mixer, my mixer, I should say, is on the fritz, and I keep fiddling the knobs with the knobs, and the sound keeps going up and down, so... Wow. And it's also because I'm like running around the room That's and you're trying true. to follow me with the microphone. And it's Some, just, you know. out of nowhere, Rosalie would just start shouting. Yeah. I, it's well, very odd. It's a problem I have. Um, reality Bites. Reality Bites. Which I came to because of you two, because of All I Want Is You, which is from oh, Rattle and right. Hum. Right. Okay. And I was like, well, this sense. was played in Reality Bites to, I think, good effect yeah. in Reality Bites. The soundtrack is not one of the problems with Reality Bites. We might disagree on that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But I don't have a problem with the U2 song. Okay, good. Yeah. What songs do you have a problem with? Well, I'm not the biggest World Party fan. Okay. I also don't like Baby my... I Love Your Way like at all. No, I, I actually don't like necessarily a lot of the songs but i think they're used to good effect in the movie okay yes that i grant and i love the my sharona like there's nothing wrong with that at all i wish that scene would go somewhere and not just fade to black like we had an idea for a bit and then we didn't know where to go with it so we just cut Mm -hmm. um anyway reality bites comes out in 1994 the debut feature of mr ben stiller who i'm already a huge fan of in 1994 because of the ben stiller show um, I was very excited to see him direct a movie. I went to see it with, I think, an ex-girlfriend who had already like gone away to college and come back. And she had taken like a woman's studies class. Mm. And every movie we saw together then was, was problematic. Yes. Yeah. Um, this was not one of them. Oddly enough, 
Because what we disagree about is the ending of this movie. And we had like a long argument about it. Not a heated argument, sure. but just like. Disagreement. A disagreement. Um, what's your history with Reality Bites? Obviously, you didn't see it in 94. I did not. No. As previously established. <laughs> right. Listen to the Village podcast. Yes. Um, so I came to this movie in probably like 2001-ish. Okay. Um, when I was going to, you know, the local video store and renting as many movies as I could every weekend. And I think I was on an Ethan Hawke kick because of Dead Poet Society. Interesting. And so having seen Dead Poet Society and then seeing him as Troy Dyer, who is not based on the real guy in Wisconsin, don't sue us. He sued them. That's um, right. Yeah. He... I read that. Is a very different uh, character in this than he was in Dead Poets, but I was, I have to admit, charmed by him and, like, watching it today, I don't know why. Um, but, like, I wrote down a ton of the quotes back then and I would oh, say no. them to, like, oh, no. and I had them on my, like, AIM profile for a while. Oh, no. Patrick, it was bad. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, like, I fell for Troy Dyer as a movie fan back in 2001, but I was also, to be fair, 20, which is the sure. age of yeah, the, right. the screenwriter when she was first asked to write this movie. So I think we can talk about how age influences your choices. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it's it's a young person's movie in a lot of ways. And maybe I was an old soul when I saw this in 94 because I was not I, – I could not buy into the Troy Dyer character. Mm -hmm. And I was not charmed by him. And I thought that this movie – sort of mythologizes a specific type of brooding 90s asshole the way that like wh what was great about my so-called life was that Claire Danes was obsessed with Jordan Catalano mm -hmm. but like the show knew he was the wrong guy right there were all these issues and he couldn't read and she was going to fix him and like it wasn't that he was completely unsympathetic or a total asshole Troy Dyer comes pretty close to being a total asshole oh yeah um, but Jordan Catalano, like the show knew was the wrong guy. And I don't think reality bites ever acknowledges that, mm -hmm. that this is the wrong guy. I think the movie is on the side of Leilana and Troy. Yes. And that's my biggest problem with this movie. Yeah. I really, this time watching it, wished that it had like ended their arc with her telling him, well, that's basically not enough yeah at the club yes because it, she's right she's totally right in her assessment of him initially there and she's right in her assessment of him several other times in the movie too where she calls him out on his bullshit and right. his entitlement and his you know pretentiousness and then suddenly like i don't know what changes but she decides that that's what she wants and you know it's up to her like let women make their own decisions. But the the weird thing is he's like calling the Ben Stiller character out for like, oh, don't tell her what she wants or don't right. tell her. He's doing the exact same thing. 100%. In fact, even more so at the end. Right. So this time watching, I was like, what a dick. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's too much for the movie to work. He needs to be way less of an asshole for the first 90 percent of the movie. A hundred percent. And Ben Stiller needs to be more of an asshole. Yeah. Because my argument in 1994, which is still my argument today, is that she belongs with Ben Stiller. 
And I get it. He's a corporate sellout. Mm -hmm. But when he says, like, I know what she needs in a way you don't. I'm like, yeah, I think he's right. Um, I, I The movie definitely tries to undercut him in its closing moments. It cuts to credits. And it's like, we're worried that people won't think Ben Stiller is enough of a shithead. So we get that little fake My So-Called Life with right. Karen Duffy and Evan Dando. And then it makes sure to put up the title card created by Michael, whatever the fuck yeah. his last name is. So that we're like, oh, Ben Stiller sucks. Oh, he and stole we leave her life. The movie. Right, exactly. Like hating Ben Stiller because the movie has not earned that sentiment at all. Like no. he's he's not great with words. The Some of the stuff he says to Ethan Hawke isn't great when he's like giving the speech about Hamlet. And he's like, I knew him and he was funny. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that Ben Stiller. I think it's funny. But like he has Ethan Hawke's number almost from the outset. Yeah. And Ethan Hawke is just a pretentious, self-absorbed philosophy major who's like in love with his stupid quotes. And yeah. even at the end of the movie, when they're together and we're supposed to be liking him, he's still leaving the, those awful outgoing messages. Oh, my God. On the the voicemail message. I was <laughs> right. like, oh, just stop. Just no. I, it's so impressed with itself. Yes. And I, I want this movie to be like 20% smarter yeah i'm making it sound like i don't like this movie so i want to be really clear about something (laughs) i like this movie a lot i enjoy it um i will watch it literally anytime i think winona is adorable in it and i love her no matter what she does and i think it's adorable that she and troy have the exact same haircut (laughs) um also i want the movie to be about janine garofalo and suzanne which originally it actually was more about them from what i read like the script had a ton more about their characters and ben stiller was like "Mm, we need to like focus this in more so like a lot of that stuff got cut out he's not wrong i mean for a movie to work they would have been more interesting i feel also this movie runs like 94 minutes which you gotta love a 94 minute movie yes um I watched it this morning before work. <laughs> <laughs> but I completely and, and, and without Ben Stiller directing this movie, I don't think we get Janine Garofalo right. in that part. And then we might not get like the film career of Janine Garofalo. She may have popped in another movie mm-hmm. and whatever, but like this is the way that it went. And for that I am grateful. Because she was on his show, right? Correct. Is that okay? Yeah. I wasn't I knew that the reason Hawk got cast was because Winona had requested him, but I right. wasn't sure how because he had the same involved. haircut. Exactly. Yeah. Matching. Uh, Steve Zahn, I don't know about because this was like, I think, the first thing I ever really saw him do. I think it's one of his first movies. Yeah. I was trying to figure that out. And some of the credits like look like they're extremely small parts or okay. really, really, really independent movies. So okay. I, this is probably his first movie. Okay. Credit. He's great. Janine Garofalo <laughs> is great. It's... It, the movie means well in so many ways. Like, I know I led off with like, here's my problem with reality yeah. bites because I too like this movie mm-hmm. as a time capsule. I enjoy it as a romantic comedy, even though I think she ends up with the wrong guy. Um, it's trying to talk about specific things in the nineties characters coming out to their parents, mm-hmm. um, AIDS, AIDS uh, just this notion of like during an economic crisis right exactly that that like you're valedictorian and you can't get a job because you've inherited nothing from the world you know Mm -hmm. um 
it it means well in addressing a lot of these things. It's a little surfacey sure. in doing it. We get like a scene with Steve Zahn and two scenes with Janine Garofalo, like sort of with this HIV testing. Um, what's your opinion on Leilana's documentary? It's shitty. Um, <laughs> She, I mean, listen, she's, you know, 20 something and like there are very talented 20 somethings, but I don't think without Ben Stiller's intervention, that would have gone anywhere. It's literally just her clips of her friends shot like really poorly right? from weird angles talking about sometimes interesting things, but mostly just them like fucking around, right. you know, I don't see a documentary there. Um, it, it's... Yeah, which is why it's interesting. Like, she thinks she's like a voice of a generation. But in so many ways, I feel like this is so meta because the the person who wrote the movie, and I should look up her name real quick, but she was, you know, a student who had like some plays that she'd put together and somehow the producers got a hold of one of those scripts and were like, well, we really want to make a movie that appeals to they didn't even have the name Gen X back then like they were calling them baby busters because it was like right oh after gosh, baby boomers and they weren't like having kids so they were like they decided the marketing before they had a script which is their first problem right, right? and then they chose to have a 20 year old write a script which is fine if she's I mean she's very good at what she did mm -hmm. but it's going to come from the perspective of a 20 year old right which means she's going to end up with Troy Dyer because probably 20-year-old, you know, screenwriter was still dating shitty guys like right, that at the time, right. right? Like, you haven't, like, lived the long game. So it has, <laughs> like, the right tone in terms of, like, the way that people probably did talk to each other. And she did base a lot of it on her friends, apparently. And, like, Evian is naive spelled backwards is something one of her friends really noticed. You know, so there's things in there that are true to life. But I also think... It's really hard to have a perspective that you need to, like, voice a generation sure, when you're sure. still just figuring out who you are, you know? And so it's a movie about figuring out yourself, but she maybe hadn't figured herself out. And then Bill, Ben Stiller's a few years removed from that. And as a director, like, I don't know if he was able to, like, fill in those gaps, you know? So the screenwriter's name is Helen Childress. That's right. Um, on the one hand, I, I, I appreciate... That it comes from something of an honest place mm -hmm. instead of there's a different version of this movie. Like you said, it's so meta because on the one hand, like Ben Stiller's In Your Face TV, the way they edit her amazing documentary, which is just home movies. Mm -hmm. It's not a documentary. No. Um on the one hand, it's like, well, they edit it into something watchable sure. and entertaining. I get that it steps on the integrity of her project and there's stupid stuff like when they all turn into pizza and mm -hmm. like Ben Stiller's really good at stuff like that, identifying like um the Ben Stiller show used to be so good at that. It like this is what this would look like if MTV got a hold of this. Right. You know, like totally. he he nails that aesthetic. Um there's a different version that is the in-your-face TV version of this movie where it is universal, just green lighting a movie to capitalize on this generation mm -hmm. and trying to manufacture the definitive Gen X 
movie. Yes. As opposed to allowing somebody to write about her own experiences and her own friends. And I have a lot of problems with Reality Bites, but it's not... I don't think it's dishonest. Right. Uh, and I give it credit for that. Yeah, I think... My issue with it ultimately is actually similar to the issue I had with Shit House, which is another movie that I think was written and directed by someone very young yes. who is in some ways seen as like giving voice to a new generation of people. And I loved a lot of things about that story. And I loved a lot of things about the character, the main character, who's also the the director. Cooper Rafe. Cooper Rafe. Um but the way that it ended, I was like, hmm, didn't love that. <laughs> but I also felt like, hmm, that's super like 24-year-old. You right, know what I mean? Right, so right, right. I have similar <laughs> issues with it because I feel like whoever you know is behind it, like they haven't lived long enough to look back and be like, man, like that person was not worth my time, right? I'm going to move on and have other relationships that mean way more. I don't have to drop everything for this screw up that's just declaring his love for me because that's what he's gonna, right, you know, be able right. to use to get me to do what he wants. So yeah, I mean it has its flaws, but I still love so much about it. I love the scene in the gas station. I love the conversation with the parents right after graduation yeah. where you have the two like step parents there and it's super awkward and Winona's just like trying to navigate between the, the awkwardness. Like, so much of that is so relatable, even if, you know, I'm not part of her specific generation, right? right? Like, right. I think maybe trying to sum up a generation in a movie is never going to work. But no. also, I think it was done better by things that weren't necessarily trying to be that, like Clerks, for example, or even Wayne's World, right? I feel like Wayne's World, in a weird way, is a Gen X movie because sure. it's also about, like, you know, not having a job and trying to do something creative and like selling not out. Not wanting to right? sell out, right? Exactly. So I was thinking about this like concept of selling out, and I don't know if it's unique to just Gen X or if it's something that every generation has to deal with. Like, am I going to be like true to myself or I'm going to like sell out and like make money and live the, you know, endorsed lifestyle? So I don't know if you identify as part of Gen X, Patrick. I feel like you're. You're not a millennial, but I don't know how you I'm in, I'm see in yourself. I'm in that weird in between. Because I, I was going to ask you if you ever like had conversations with your friends about selling out. No, I don't think I ever had conversations with my friends. I got when I got this stupid tattoo on my finger. It was <laughs> definitely like part of the motivation was like. Then I'll never have like a nine to five job because ah, because they don't like tattoos. Who would hire me? Sure, with a yeah. tiny tattoo on my finger. <laughs> and now you know the woman working at the bank has two sleeves of tattoos. Um, yeah, you know, selling out now has become, I think, almost impossible because we're all busting our asses like at a job, and then our passions have become our hobbies. Mm -hmm. And so there's no chance of making our passions a job anymore. Right. So we don't have a choice but to, quote unquote, sell out. Right. You could still pursue the thing that you want to do. You know, Leilana is working the job at the John Mahoney talk show and still making her documentary and isn't selling out at that point. Right. Right. Theoretically. Right. But like. Janine Garofalo somehow is by working at the Gap. Exactly. Even though she's making four hundred dollars a week, which I guess back then was like pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty good. Although when Leilana says I make four hundred dollars a week, Ben Stiller is kind of shocked and is like, right. "What do you do that yeah. you only make four hundred dollars a week?" So 
that disparity I thought was kind of interesting. It was interesting because I think we probably should assume his character has been at it for a few more years. So right. he probably graduated in the 80s when things were like really prosperous. And so it was way easier, at least from what I hear, yeah. to like get ahead in that environment. And then just a few short years later, it's all like crashing down, right? So yeah, I mean, I, I graduated in 2006 and similarly felt like, you know, people that had graduated just a few years before were able to just like go right out and get jobs. Right. And then, you know, 2006 to 2008 was like a really difficult time for people yeah. that were graduating. And yeah. I knew people that had master's degrees and were working at Target and like no shade yeah. to that, you know, like you've got to live. And I worked in retail for 10 years for that same reason. Like you've got to live. Um I do remember like thinking when I worked, so I had a year of working in radio, which is what I majored in. And I do remember the day that I quit my radio job because I couldn't pay my student loans. And I was like, I got to get like a real job. And I did have that conflict of like, is this a door I'm closing forever? You know? Um, But I don't think I thought of it in terms of selling out. It was more just like what you're saying of like, this is a thing I was really excited about doing. And I've realized the sad truth that I'm not going to make money off of it, you know? And thankfully, there's lots of other ways to like have that outlet, like podcasts now exist, for example. But yeah, I think part of growing up is somewhat coming to terms with like difficult realities and the yeah. people in this movie haven't had a lot of those difficult realities thrust upon them That's yet. because reality bites. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but she meant sound bites. Patrick. Oh, reality bites. Yeah. Got it. That's what I hear. Oh, really? Oh, I don't know. Either way, most people think of it as the yes, other way around. Yes, of course. Um, remind me to go back to their pop culture, because all their pop culture comes from the 70s. It does. Which is, I guess, accurate, but they would have been, like, under 10 years old. Sure. So I'm not sure why everything is good times and, and uh, what's the one with Schneider? Uh, oh, my gosh. Jaws. <laughs> That's Schneider. <laughs> When he's talking about if you so could close. bottle the sexual tension between oh, shit anyway, one day at a time. Yeah. Okay. It's one day at a time. Um, no, I definitely have been through that. When I started after this movie, it was like a to sort of take control of my own destiny, but also as a means of climbing some non-existent ladder that mm-hmm. if I could build the site and make it big enough and popular enough maybe it would attract some advertisers and maybe it could make a little bit of money and then maybe that would lead to something so for the first many years i mean i was killing myself Mm -hmm. like um and at a certain point i was just like this is something that i like doing that i will continue to do but this is not it's not a means to an end. It's not a means to an end yeah. at all. Um, and, you know, the 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 job of film critic has basically disappeared because everybody does it for free. Yeah. Erica and I talk about this all the time. Uh, if you have so many people willing to do it for nothing, mm-hmm. why would they pay anybody? Sure. And so, like, Supply and demand. Right. Maybe. When Dan Geyer retires from the Daily Herald, they're not replacing him with, mm-hmm. like, an on-staff film critic. Right. They're just going to like freelance or not run film reviews or, hey, you go, you know, what they used to do before film criticism became legitimate. Just ask the 
person who does the obituaries like go out and review that movie you know what i mean yeah yeah um or they'll just they'll just outsource it from the ap or you know mm-hmm. whatever what i'm so off topic um i didn't feel like giving up that dream meant selling out yeah for whatever reason and and i've been fortunate to to have a job it doesn't pay super well but like it's something that i enjoy doing um that's not because i spent a year in like the corporate world and i was it was the wrong fit like it ended disastrously Mm -hmm. um so i don't want to go back to that so i'm fortunate that i have this teaching job that i can do and you know whatever um i don't i don't remember how we got here well, we were talking about selling out because, oh, yeah. you know, um, the characters in this movie do have that conversation in so right. many words. And there does seem to be judgment being passed. Although at one point, Leilana does take a job or interview for a job at Wiener Schnitzel right. with David Spade, which you is got fun. time to lean, you got time to clean. Exactly. I do enjoy those little tiny scenes with some sure. of the cameos. Yeah. Um, Andy Dick plays a perfect, you know creeper um for example um so it's those the are, part he was born it to is play. the part he was born to play although i love news radio and he's so fun in that too i love news radio as well <sighs> so good yeah um but yes so back to the point i guess um i just think these characters are so so young and like thankfully they've figured out ways to like make ends meet creatively um but you know for a lot of people like that struggle is real and so yeah. selling out is not so much just like a choice you make but like well, I need to eat. I need yeah. to keep a roof over my head. Yeah. Like, if I have kids, I need to feed my kids, you know? And so it's not – most people don't have the luxury of choosing if they're going to sell out or not. It's just right. something you exactly. have to do. <laughs> I, I got my master's in 2006. I was walking to Target to apply for a job when I got a call about a job at a newspaper wow. that I ended up taking and worked at for a little while. And, yeah. like – um. But yeah, I mean, you got to do what you got to do, you know, and I like that this movie judges Leilana for being shitty about Janine Garofalo's job at the Gap, that there's a nobility to Janine Garofalo being willing to work at the Gap Mm -hmm. and earn money. And she doesn't look down at it, you know. She's right. She not... seems like she's genuinely good at it and yes. seems to take pride in it, which is exactly. great, you know. And I like that. Because we got to have when... people working at the Gap. Exactly. And you want somebody who's good at it and enjoys it. You don't want everyone miserable at their jobs all the time. Exactly. And when Winona Ryder says something shitty about it, it's like the movie is not on her side. Right. Which I like. I was also rewatching the the TV segment stuff through new eyes this time, too, because well, first of all, John Mahoney's always good. Sure. But um, he is, like, his character is, like, shitty to her. But at the same time, I think she completely self-sabotages with the way that that job ends. You know yes. what I mean? Like, she makes him basically, she does the anchorman thing. She right, has him exactly. say something that's on the cards right. that makes him look like a big creep. And right. he's not, you know. She didn't have to do that. Like, she could have used that opportunity to, like, in her, I guess, version, work her way up or get you know what she needed well she did overhear him basically say she will never move up at this company that's true which is when she chooses to crash and burn yeah again is it great no because now the next job you go for obviously you're not going to get because they're going to hear what you did at your last job you know um 
So it's definitely a shitty Ethan Hawke move. Yeah. Which the movie doesn't really even like play up that parallel. It's like she just does something completely out of character because mm-hmm. it would be funny for this five minute chunk of the movie. Right. But it, I don't think it totally tracks with everything else going on. It doesn't. But I do like that the movie like has her live with the consequences of that decision. Yeah. Because that is like what would happen, right? right? If right. you if you get fired, you still have to pay your rent. You right. still have to pay the bills. You right. still have to, you know, especially if you live with friends, like you've got to be honest with them about what just happened. And so I did appreciate that the movie like follows through on that. The gas card scam and the psychic friends chunk both feel like they're born out of like stuff that really happened. Mm-hmm. I don't know that to be true, but... Especially the gas card scam. I was like, oh, this seems like something she did or one of her friends did. Yeah. Well, I mean, I can't fully, fully relate. But when I was right out of college, I did have a credit card that only worked at gas stations. And I did go to, to gas stations and bought a lot of grocery type Well, items. of course. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, that part was relatable. For right. Sure. Right. Um, the, the psychic friend stuff doesn't work so well for me. But again, it to your point about like sort of the economic reality she does the gas card scam. She earns the $400 to pay the phone bill. And Janine Garofalo's first line is, great, rent's due on Friday. Exactly. So It never ends, right? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, which I like. You know, again, there's there's so much that the movie does right. Um, I think it looks great. Yeah. Well, isn't it shot by Emmanuel Luzbecki? Yeah. Which I didn't realize until I watched it this time. And I was like, oh, that's an early one for him, but yeah, yeah. Like I mean, now he's overqualified, right? He does all he the. Is. He's overqualified. <laughs> the Inuritu movies, right? Yes. Um, he's overqualified to do this '90s trifle of a romantic comedy, but like it looks great, and I think Ben Stiller has a real eye for composition. He's moving the camera in interesting ways. Mm-hmm. Like I kind of miss Ben Stiller, and this came up on the on a Patreon show recently because we were talking about Mystery Men. Mm-hmm. I miss the Ben Stiller that was like exciting. And I know he's he's moving back into that arena. I have not watched Severance. Oh, it's great. I know. And and you wrote that thing about it and, and I need to watch it. Now I'm kind of putting it on hold because it's obviously been delayed because of the writer's strike. And mm-hmm. I'm like, well, I don't want to binge a whole season and then be like, where's the next one? Oh, yes. right. Welcome Studios to my life. won't pay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I'm glad that he's moving back into doing some interesting, exciting stuff because I think once the 2000s hit, he becomes a comedy star, um, not like an alternative comedy star, but a real mainstream Night at the Museum, Meet the Parents mm-hmm. guy. And he still takes the occasional chance. You know, I think Tropic Thunder is interesting it's not perfect sure. but like it it's a comedy that takes some chances and it's directed very well he's a really good director yeah. um but i miss like the guy who could sort of navigate between studio stuff and indie stuff as an actor right. or as a filmmaker um i miss him behind the camera i mean again cable guy like not perfect but but fascinating. So fascinating. Trying a lot of things. Especially at the time it came out yeah. where it's like, I can't believe they let him get away with making that movie and paying Jim Carrey $20 million to do yes. it. Um, so I'm a, I'm a big Ben Stiller fan. I'm not as big a fan of, again, him like 
on camera in the 2000s just because when he becomes family comedy guy, that's just not as interesting to me. But uh, I think he directs this movie really well, and I really like his performance as Michael. He's really good as that character, yeah. and watching it this time, I was like, wow. Like, his character is robbed, because he really is, like, the most likable person besides maybe Steve Zahn in this movie. Yeah. Um, And, yeah, he has his cheeseball moments, like, you know, baby, I love your way or whatever. Right, right. But he's actually being sincere, and I yeah. think... So we joked about Define Irony, but I think what I really, like, was drawn to this time was that sincerity because right. all the other characters do have that ironic detachment. Right. And he's just leaning into, like, nope, this is me. I'm I'm cool with it. And, right. you know, he doesn't have to have the secret handshake or the prerequisite IQ or whatever, right? <laughs> he's, he's, he's fine with himself. I hate that they have to point out that, like, Troy's a genius. Um, yeah. He comes to apologize yes. to Leilana, which Ethan Hawke eventually comes around to. But, like, in that moment, we get one character apologizing sincerely and saying, you can have your project back and you can do it your way. Right. Her dream. It's everything you want. And then we have the other character playing a violent femme song, like, dedicating it to her. Because they had a one night stand together and he stopped talking to her. Yes. And she ends up with that guy. Yes. <laughs> like, what the fuck are we doing in this movie? Exactly. And again, this was my objection the night I saw it. And this this girl that I had dated as like a freshman and sophomore, she had gone away to college and came back and we saw it. And she was trying to tell me like why I was wrong and why Ethan Hawke was the better choice and why he – and it's like I get it in terms of like – there is that that thing where, like, sometimes people are drawn to a certain type of mm-hmm. man or woman or partner. Um, there is that thing where I can fix him or whatever. And, you know, the closest that this movie gets to pointing out the problem with the Leilana Michael relationship is when Ethan Hawke says, you're in that because you get to call the shots 100%. Right. Which... I guess is bad. <laughs> I don't know, you know if it is bad. I and I don't know if it's actually true. I either. don't either. But that's the closest I think the movie comes to identifying why they shouldn't be together. And I don't think it earns that. Right. I mean, does she see it as an opportunity for her career? Maybe more so than like, uh, I like this guy. Maybe. But even then, I'm not 100% opposed because, like, she's young and it's probably not going to last forever anyway. So, like, right. whatever. Um, she also doesn't have to end up with anybody. <laughs> she would be no. fine on her own. 100%. And it's funny because in talking about, like, shithouse or talking about reality bites mm-hmm. or whatever, like, I'm thinking back to the first script I ever wrote in mm-hmm. the 90s. And at the end... The, the the male character and the female character do not end up together. And I was like, because that's how life is sometimes. Yeah. And sometimes this is you meet the wrong person at the wrong time and you don't end up together. And then adult me is like, yeah, but if I'm watching a movie. You kind of want to see them <laughs> together. Exactly. Of course. Like, yes. You know, so it's tricky. Mm-hmm. Um, I just I, I, I stand by this notion that like Ethan Hawke needed to be 50 percent cooler yeah and maybe I don't mean he should cool have washed his hair once or twice i don't know <laughs> i don't mean cool in air quotes because this movie works overtime to make him cool in air quotes 
I mean nicer. Just like yeah. they have one good scene where he has the great line about you and me and five bucks. Yes. And then two seconds later, he kisses her yes. <laughs> and fucks it all up, which I know is like part of what the movie's trying to do, but it doesn't earn it. Um, and it needs to make Ben Stiller 50% shittier mm-hmm. because they seem to get along and have fun together and they have things in common. Like their whole thing about like looking at the stars, like a a slightly better version of this movie would have them on two different pages at all times. Right. And she's dating him out of convenience or to advance her career or because she can call the shots or all of these other theories that we floated. Right. But instead he's like a nice guy who loves her. How dare he? And wants to do right by her and doesn't treat her shitty. So we got to run from that. Yeah. I mean, there's a version of their relationship where he's, you know, like condescending to her or treats her like a child. Like her mom's husband ends up being the guy that, you know, like needs his food to be chopped up or whatever. Like there's a version of it that could be that, but it's not that. They're not even that far apart in age. I looked it up. They're only like six years apart. It's not a huge age gap. Like life experience maybe right yeah um yeah i i liked him i do too and again the 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 movie tries to sell him out at the end with that little post credits tag and i just mm-hmm. have to call bullshit on that yeah i also just don't feel like his character comes across as like funny enough to have written that weird parody version of those two characters right right so um, i don't know I do like the cast. Uh, the audio's doing all this weird shit again. Um, I do like the casting of Evan Dando. I do too. And it's just fun to see him show up in something, Always. and he's real bad. But yeah. he's, he was in a movie. Did you ever see James Mangold's first movie, Heavy? No. He like has a main part in that. He's like Liv Tyler's boyfriend, and he's does actually he play pretty the heavy? good. Uh, he does not. Pruitt Taylor <laughs> Vince is the heavy, the titular heavy. Okay. Um, but he's like good in it. And, yeah. Oh, there goes there goes the mic again. Okay. Everything's going great. I guess we should probably wrap up before uh, I have any more audio problems. But we both like this movie with reservations. Yes. Do you think it qualifies? Because yesterday when you guys were here, um, a friend of ours was saying, what's the most 90s movie ever made? Is it Reality Bites? Mm, No, because I feel like... it. it, Like you mentioned, the 70s references make it not really feel as 90s. To me, okay. Um, granted, I had a weirder '90s than most, but for <laughs> me, like I think she also brought up Ten Things I Hate About You. I think that's a great example of a, okay. a potential '90s movie. I feel like probably for me, it's like Wayne's World or. Okay. Um, that's interesting because both of those are on the they're on the ends, ends. right? Yeah. I realize that. Um, I haven't seen Singles in a long time, but do you think Singles would be on your list of '90s? Seeming movies? I mean, it certainly tries, but there's something try-hard about singles. Mm. Like, Cameron Crowe is definitely like, I want to capture this moment. Yeah. And not in a cynical way, because I don't think there's anything cynical about Cameron Crowe. But uh, it does seem to be a little bit, like, tacked on. Like, oh, and what if we set it in Seattle at this time when Mm. all these bands are blowing up? And, like, it doesn't feel organic. If that makes sense. Sure. One of the most 90s movies ever made to me, which is funny because it doesn't come out till like 2001, is Josie and the Pussycats. Yeah. <laughs> I can see that. I don't know. 
I could see that. Yeah. Um, I almost feel like the movies that I associate most with the 90s are the more like independent movies. Yes. Oh, like 100%. Like the Linklater movies, yes. like the Kevin Smith movies, right. right? Like those are what I associate in my head. And when I right. think 90s, I do think like Clerks or right. Slacker or, you know, even Mallrats, right? It's, yeah. it's capturing a culture and maybe it's a very like subcultural version of that culture, but it is more of a time capsule in my head. And it has that DIY aesthetic that yeah. also, to me, feels very 90s. Yeah. Like Clerks or, or, or Noah Baumbach's first movie, Kicking and Screaming. Did you ever see that? that one. It's really good. But it's the kind of movie that like could only have existed at the time that it, it's like 93 or 94. Sure. And could only have existed at that time. Right. Like, Another one that comes to mind is Go Fish. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which is also like, you know, it's an LGBT movie. It's yeah. very 90s feeling. Yeah. It's dealing with issues that were really issues then. And it's super indie, right? And it has that sort of same sort of feel that like living on Tokyo time does of people okay. that aren't necessarily yeah. professional actors, but right. they're kind of displaying real experiences people were having at the time. I just saw Guinevere Turner from Go Fish show up in something. Oh. It was a horror movie. It's called Candyland. It's not I great. I've seen it. It's not great. She should have had a bigger career she really as an have. actor. She's fantastic. She could have been either of the parts in Reality Bites. Like yeah. she could have been a great Leilana or a great Janine Garofalo. I heard the Janine Garofalo part was offered to Gwyneth Paltrow, which I think would have been. There were a few. Parker Posey was up for it, yeah. um, who, of course, would have Makes nailed sense. it because yeah. she was the 90s poster girl. But like, and somebody else big was up for that part but i know ben stiller pushed for gene garofalo which i'm glad he did that was the right call. me too because she steals every scene she's in yeah her delivery of uh oh christ is <laughs> maybe my favorite thing in the movie yes so oh good. christ that's one of my favorite scenes for <laughs> sure thank you guys very much for listening thank you for talking about this movie with me Thank you, Patrick. We had a good conversation about a flawed movie. We did. Imagine is, that. Yeah, right? That's what we do on this show, damn it. Uh, for more F This Movie, go to fthismovie.com. Like and subscribe. Uh, we're on Spotify. We're on Apple Podcasts. We're on Amazon Podcasts, if that's a thing. I think it is. You can just tell your Alexa to play F This Movie. Uh, I'll do it right now for you. Alexa, play F This Movie. There. Perfect. Uh, now all of your Alexas have started talking. Um, we have a Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash fthismovie for more content and bonus episodes and uh, new shows every Wednesday. Thanks again, Rosalie. Thank you. Thanks for listening to FS Movie.